Tonight I have the honor and the privilege of introducing a truth teller. Someone uh, uh, who's heard the truth and it's impacted his, his life. And from the, from the, as we read his book and as we hear his story, he's committed his life to promoting, protecting, defending, speaking, and telling that truth. Tonight we have the privilege of hearing a truth teller. Along with that privilege, we have responsibility and accountability. So I welcome you to this dangerous place called the truth to hear this very powerful, but sometimes can get you in trouble message called the gospel of the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, would you welcome with me this truth teller, Shane Claiborne. Well, it is good to be together. It, there's so much happening up in here. I just went down and there's all kinds of folks eating a meal downstairs. They're having church down there. We're having it up in here, right? Y'all having a good night? This is so nice. Um, I'm, I'm from Philadelphia, but I've only been living there 10 years. I'm originally from uh, East Tennessee. And I got to tell you, it's they're two different worlds. All right. Uh, like I can remember the first time that we brought my grandmother up to Philadelphia. And <laughs> first of all, it was always a big debate whether it was a good idea to bring Mama up or not, you know, and. I always told my mom, I'm like, Mom, it's, it's such a nice idea. She can come up, meet my neighbors, then she'll be able to sleep better. And my mom came up and she said, if your granny comes up here, she will never sleep again, son. <laughs> and um, But uh, eventually we got we got to bring her up to Philly and we're driving around North Philly and the the school was letting out, the Catholic school. And so my grandmother sees all the, the Catholic school girls on the corner and um. They're all wearing uniforms, which we don't do that in Tennessee, you know. And so she looks at me and she leans over and she goes, Shane, is that a gang? <laughs> I like, no, Mamma, those are Catholic schoolgirls. They won't hurt you. They won't hurt you. Um, and uh, you see, we, we didn't have a lot of uh, gangs or a lot of Catholics, for that matter, in East Tennessee. And... Um, I, I think that, that, you know, a part of what this Christian journey is about is, is not just having better vision, but having new eyes, you know, and, and Jesus had a lot of things to say about, do you have the eyes to see? And, and at least for me, um, He's always testing our vision. You know, he's, he's seeing if we, if we have the eyes to see truth, the idea is to see our neighbor differently. And, uh, I, I want to show you one of those verses where I think Jesus has this beautiful imagination to see if we have the eyes to see. This is a verse I've thought a lot about this year, and it comes from the Gospel of Luke. And uh, just to set the context a little bit, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, has gotten in a little bit of trouble, and so he got locked up from Herod. Um, this is before Herod cuts his head off. But anyway, he's in prison and he sends his disciples to see if Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for. So John's disciples are coming to ask uh, if Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for. And Jesus, his response is brilliant. So, so check this out. Um, in Luke chapter 7, it says, When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who we've been waiting for or should we expect somebody else 
At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and tell John what you see and what you hear. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) I mean, here's Jesus, and he goes on to say, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. But the beautiful thing is, here they are, they're like, Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for? And Jesus just says, tell me what you see, and tell me what you hear. Uh, I love it because I think there's this sense of, of mystery and this hope that you'll be able to see the trail of crumbs behind him, you know, and, and Jesus is never one to be pimping out that he's the son of God, you know, and I, I like it because there, usually he just lives the beautiful mystery of who he is and people start to discover it, you know, and they're like, whoa, you're the Messiah. And most of the time, Jesus is like, shh, don't go around telling everybody, you know. And and I find that ironic that many of us in the evangelical church, we've been so forceful and aggressive to make sure that everybody sees who Jesus is. And and um, and yet, like the, the question that I begin to ask when I read this verse is, do we have the same integrity as a church that if someone came up and they said, are you Christians? Could we say Tell us what you see. And, uh, and I think a lot of the Christianity that I grew up with, it didn't have much to show. It had a lot to say, you know, with our mouth. But uh, I, I love when our brother Brennan Manning, he said, but the, the problem is that the biggest barrier to Christ has been Christians who shout so loudly with our mouths and live so ugly with our lives. And it's that which I think Gandhi knew when uh, they asked Gandhi, they said, are you a Christian? And he would say, Oh, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians took him more seriously. You know, that that we want a Christianity, though, today. I think so many of us in this room want a Christianity that looks more like Jesus. And a lot of what we've seen may not look like it. I don't know your experience with church, but... This year, there was a study done all over the United States where the Barna Research Group asked people outside of Christianity, outside of the church, what are your perceptions of Christians? And what they found was so deeply disturbing. The number one perception of people outside the church is that Christians are anti-gay. That's number one. Number two is that we are judgmental. And number three is that we are hypocrites. Those are the top three perceptions. We got just a little bit of an image crisis, you know, <laughs> and much of it's well-deserved. You know, I, I, I think that, that just as I see so many signs of hope in the church right now, there's also a lot of ugly things that I see. I, I can remember speaking somewhere not too long ago. Uh, it was a big group of folks, and the pastor came up to me beforehand. He said, I just wanted to make sure that you noticed something. And he went on to point out that on the front row, there were two gay men that had come in, and they were holding hands. And he said, I want to make sure you notice that so you can say something if you want to. And uh, 
I'm not sure exactly what he had in mind. You know, (laughs) I told him, I said, well, maybe I could say that I'm glad they felt welcome in your church. Uh, But that wasn't what he had in mind. You know, and uh, I said, in fact, if I were going to embarrass them, maybe I'd just keep rolling with it. And I'll tell everybody if they've been divorced or remarried to stand up and we'll embarrass them, too. And I I said, in fact, next week you could put bouncers at the door and you could ask everybody as they're coming in. Have you been prideful or greedy this week? And we'll just bounce them out of here, you know, and we'll be left with a much more manageable crowd, you know, maybe a dozen self-righteous people on the front row. And I'll tell them that if they manage to get in the building, they must all be liars and they can get on out too, you know. Uh, but uh, sometimes I wonder what this whole thing is about. And, and you know, for me, I think I was raised uh, learning to look at people but not to look into people, you know, to see people's brokenness on the outside, but not to see people's beauty and image of God on the inside. And when I first moved up into North Philly, I had to get new eyes, you know, because I, I had grown up seeing, uh, you know, judging so many people. And, and I, I, I can remember when we first moved into my neighborhood, um, there were a lot of difficult things. In our neighborhood, um, the pain is very visible. You know, I think in some other neighborhoods, it's, it's more subtle. You know, we hide it better. But my neighborhood is just kind of like on your sleeve, you know. And one of the places that we would have to walk in order to go to the grocery store was we'd have to walk down Kensington Avenue, which is just filled with drug trafficking and prostitution. And the, one of the first days that we moved in the neighborhood, my housemate Michelle and I, we walked to the store to get bread. And I was propositioned by one of the women on the avenue, uh, and she propositioned me as a prostitute, and I was feeling a little bit awkward, you know, and I just kind of uh, went on to the, sco- the store, and Michelle stayed to talk with her. And I, I bought our bread, and then we walked back to the house. And when we got back to the house, we noticed that the bag of bread I had gotten had a tear in the side, and all the bread had gotten stale. And um, I... Uh, I look at Michelle and she's like, well, we'll just go back and trade it for a new loaf, you know. And the whole time I'm thinking, great, you know, we're going to have to walk back down the ave. And we do. We go back to the store. And as we pass by where that woman was, we we notice that she's hunkered down in the alley and she's just kind of shivering in the cold. And we, we go and we get our bread and everything. And then we come back and Michelle and I know that we can't just pass by her, you know. So we walk down in the alley and we bend down next to her and we ask her her name. And and uh, we said, you know, if you need a place to come back to, we've got a little uh, house around the corner where you can get warm. You can get something to eat, you know, and uh, have somebody to talk to. And she jumps up and she follows us back to the house. We go back to the house. And as soon as she walks in the door, she just falls apart. She starts weeping and wailing. And and Michelle's just rocking her like a little child. And as she sort of gathers herself, the weirdest thing happened. She looks up and she goes, you guys are Christians, aren't you? Now, that was a little shocking because we don't have a sign outside that says repent or burn. You know, like, like no, no crosses, nothing. And we're, we're kind of like, yeah, we love Jesus. And she said, I know you do because you you kind of shine. And she said, I used to shine like that, too. I used to be so in love with God that I had this fire bursting out of me and I shine like the stars in the sky. But then she said. But it's a cold, dark world. And I lost my shine a little while back. I lost my shine on these old streets. 
And we prayed for her that night. We prayed that she would hear the whisper of God, that she is beloved and beautiful and she would be filled with God's fire again and start to shine. And then we sent her out and, you know, we didn't know if we'd ever see her again. And then one day, weeks and weeks later, there was a knock at the door and we get a lot of knocks at the door. So I I didn't think anything of it. I opened the door and there's this woman here. She just goes, hey, (laughs) I'm like, Hey, do do we know each other, you know? And and she goes, oh, yeah, but you don't recognize me because I'm shining again, you know? And uh, I knew who she was then. And then she just started talking, and she's like, I'm in love with Jesus. I'm shining. And she said, I wanted to just come back and thank you, and I wanted to give you a little gift. And she said, but I lost pretty much everything I have when I was on the streets Except I, I smoked my cigarettes and I always collected my Marlboro Miles from the sides of the cigarette boxes. And she said, so hold on a minute. And she runs out to the car and she gets this box that's just bubbling over with Marlboro Miles. And she goes, they're yours. You know, <laughs> I, awesome, you know, I mean, not sure what to do with that. Get a bag or something. But I found that they actually make pretty good page markers for your Bible, but I, I, um, I, I, I actually think it's the best gift I've ever gotten, you know, and that, that woman is alive again. And, and that's, that, that's what God's so good at, isn't it? Is, is bringing us back to life. But I think it's so easy just to see each other on the outside. And, and I was telling my friend that story. I was like, you know, this is, this is beautiful. And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what's incredible about Jesus is he never talked to a prostitute. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he did. And I, I start whipping my Bible out. You know, I'm always ready for a little theological sparring, you know, and I, I'm like, yeah, he does. And he's like, no, 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 listen to me. Jesus didn't talk to a prostitute because he didn't see a prostitute. He saw a child that he was madly in love with. My buddy won the argument that day, you know, but I wonder, you know, what would the world look like if we were able to have the eyes of Jesus? It's such a beautiful thing that that, you know, as they they bring this woman caught in adultery out, you know, and they they bring her out and they're all ready to stone her, you know, all these guys. And then uh, Jesus comes into the middle of that and he goes, wait, 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 let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. You see, and then I think that he, he he goes on and he goes, well, if you've called your neighbor rock a fool, you're a murderer. If you've looked at someone lustfully, you're guilty of adultery. You see, we're all adulterers. We're all murderers. And none of us is beyond the grace of God. And that's the good news. That's why it's so confusing to me how we get this sense that the church has got to be a place that looks like we have it all together. You know, one of my buddies said, I, I would be fine going to church as long as we put a, a, a billboard outside that said, let's pretend. You know, because he said it doesn't feel like you can be real. And yet the church has got to be a place where you can you can stand up and go, hey, I am a wretched sinner. And everybody will go, amen. And you're all so beautiful, you know, and I think all of us need to be reminded of that. But I'm not sure how we get the idea that we should have it all together, that, that we should have it all. We should have it all figured out. You know, the, the, the church is a place for wounded people. And, and, and in the scripture, uh, in the scripture, I think, you know, there's, there's this beautiful place where, where Jesus says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And isn't that good news to all of us? Isn't that good news to all of us? 
Bono, the great theologian, um, he, he said, uh, he said, the fact, he said, I used to read the Bible and it disturbed me that it was filled with hustlers and murderers and liars and cowards. He said, that used to disturb me. But he said, now I find it a great source of comfort. You know, because we can see ourselves in there, in that story, that this is a, this is a story for people that are messed up. You know, uh, I think of David. We know David as a man after God's own heart. <laughs> but you read the Bible and the brother breaks almost every command in two chapters, you know, I mean, he lusts, he commits adultery, he murders the woman's husband to cover it up, you know, I mean, he, he and yet he's not beyond God's grace. So I, I think of Saul of Tarsus, you know, this man who by every definition was a terrorist and went door to door trying to kill these followers of Jesus. And, um, And yet, as he's killing this young man named Stephen, it's an incredible story. The first Christian martyr, as he's overseeing the killing of Stephen, Stephen cries out, Father, forgive him, for he doesn't know what he's doing. Don't hold this against him. (laughs) It's crazy, you know. He had heard that before, you know, but he, he, he gives that cry of grace. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the next chapter is about Saul's conversion as he becomes an extremist for grace. You know, he writes about God's grace and he says, I'm the chief of sinners because he was, you know, and it's through our wounds that we are made to be healers. Uh, one of my buddies is a, uh, a pastor, an urban youth pastor, and he's got a lot of tough kids. And he says, every year I take these kids on the retreat. And he says, I'm not sure why we do it sometimes, but we take them to this fancy retreat where they got all kinds of like big music and bands and speakers and everything. And he said, but the craziest thing happened. He said, this one year, this, this last year, he said, one of my kids, the, one of the toughest kids came to Jesus. And he, and he said, and, and I thought back about it and he said, here's what happened. On the way to the retreat, he said, we had a flat tire in the van. And it was one of those things that just kept getting worse. You know, he's like, we had a flat tire. So I get out and start changing the tire. I figure out that the spare tire doesn't match the tire. And and then it starts raining. And he's like, everything just kept getting worse and worse. And finally, he said, I just lost it. I went off the hook and started kicking the van and cussing at it. And he said, all my kids are sitting inside looking at me, kicking the van and cussing. And he said, and finally I ended up, we called AAA, whatever, we got all figured out. He said, I got back in the van and I just looked at the kids and I said, shut up. I don't want to hear a word. And they drove on to that retreat. And he said, uh, and that night, one of those kids, uh, he came to Jesus and, uh, and he said, I asked him, you know, was it the band? Was it the speaker? He said, no, it was when you were kicking the van and cussing at it. I thought if Jesus can save you, he can sure enough save me. You know, <laughs> we have a God that that's big, a God that's beautiful. And I think as we get the sense of God's grace, we can't help but see that every human being is better than the worst things we do. You know, we're better than the worst things that we do. And I remember one of those other young men that felt the, this world kind of kill the good in him, kind of suffocate the light in him. And it was this man that went to, uh, he was a, a soldier in Iraq in the 92 war. And he said, as he was there, 
He was a forward observer. He went before anybody else and he saw such pain and such struggle. And he wrote home these letters and it said, day after day it gets a little bit easier to kill, but I feel like I'm turning from a human being into an animal. And he signed those letters, Timothy McVeigh. He comes back and he's, his mind is totally confused and muddled. He, he bombs Oklahoma City. And he said, I want people to see Oklahoma City and say, we don't want that to happen even in Iraq. His mind had gone crazy. And yet then what happens is that he is put uh, forward for the death penalty to kill him, to show that killing is wrong after he's been trained to kill. What a crazy world we live in. And yet in the middle of all of that, there was this interruption of grace. There's a man named Bud Welch who had his daughter killed in the Oklahoma City bombing. And he said, when that happened, I wanted Timothy McVeigh to fry. He said, I was so angry. I was so confused. And then he said, but then I prayed and I thought And he said, and then I wrote Timothy McVeigh's family and he went and he met with them. And he said, in that moment, there was this sense of reconciliation where he began to see that Timothy McVeigh was somebody's son. And he said, "Uh, in that moment, I have never felt closer to God than when, when I was there. And he became one of the most outspoken uh, opponents of the death penalty, even up to the very moment that Timothy McVeigh was killed. It's those interruptions of grace that I think are so beautiful. And as many of you know, as I um, saw what was happening after September 11th, I ended up going over to Iraq with a group of people who wanted to interrupt the violence that was happening in our world with grace. And we we went over there and we met with families and we lived in Baghdad during the bombing. And there's this one worship service that I will never forget. Uh, we, we, we got together and the, there was an Iraqi pastor and a U.S. pastor that were together and they were leading this worship service and they stole, they, they, they told this story of a woman, uh, that was kind of a legend to them. This woman who had lost all of her family from tremendous violence by the police. The police had come into her home and they had brutally killed them by pouring gasoline on them and they set them on fire. And they had brought these police officers before the court to figure out what is harsh enough a penalty for what they did. And that woman stood up in court and she silenced everybody as she said, these men have taken everybody that I love from me. And so I have a lot of love to give. I would ask that you sentence them to come and spend two days a month with me in my home so that I can show them what forgiveness feels like and so that I can show them that grace is real. That's crazy, isn't it? And yet it it looks so much like Jesus. I I think of our, our brother... Uh, James, as he was being killed, he was one of those martyrs. And as he was being killed, he witnessed to the executioner and he told the executioner that he was loved by God and that Jesus died for him. And that executioner gave his life to Jesus and they hugged one another. And the story goes that they were led to their execution together. Isn't that crazy? 
or I think of the other martyr, Dirk Willems, who uh, was put in jail. And he ended up escaping from jail, which I think is, you know, it's funny. Even though the scripture says we're to love our enemies, it doesn't say we can't run from them. You know, and so he's he's running from these guys and the prison guards are pursuing him. And as they run after him, uh, he manages to run across this frozen pond. But the prison guard behind him, he hears the, the, the ice crack and the prison guard falls in and he's left with a tough decision. Right. <laughs> do I run or do I come back and help this brother? He goes back on the ice, reaches down and lifts the guy out of the ice only to be led back to jail and killed. But what about the witness of God's love and grace? What about the story that that prison guard has? You know, and I, I think of, of Jesus as he's being uh, led to his execution. It's so hard for us to get this idea of grace because Peter, even up at the last moment, like he's been learning from Jesus for a while now. And he picks up his sword and pulls, off, you know, cuts off the servant's ear. And I think, oh, man, Jesus must have been really dis- discouraged at that point, you know, and because Jesus's response is so beautiful. I, I think if ever there was a case for just war, Peter had it, right? To protect the innocent. And yet, uh, he, 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 Jesus scolds him. And he says, if you pick up the sword, we'll die by the sword. Enough of this. I could have called down legions of angels. And then he puts that guy's ear back on. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, and what about the story of that servant? What about the story of grace? even as he, Jesus is led like a lamb to the slaughter. And I think that's what our world is so hungry for right now is communities like this, communities where you can come as you are, you can be embraced, you can be reminded that you're created in the image of God no matter how much the clutter and stuff and darkness of this world floods us. And Dr. Martin Luther King, he said, he said so well, he said that these are extreme times that we're living in. The question isn't whether or not we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hatred or extremists for love? And I think what's so beautiful is that the church is filled with people right now that are trying to figure out how can we be extremists for love? You know, and people have seen. A Christian extremists for hatred that'll blow up abortion clinics and dance on the doctor's grave. Christian extremists that'll hold signs that say, God hates fags. Sick Christianity. But I think that the world is so ready to see Christian extremists for love and for grace. And I really believe that a generation from now, we will not be known as anti-gay, hypocritical and judgmental, but that we will be known by things like love, grace, mercy and justice. Amen. And that's what we long for. That's what we we desire to be. And, you know, I think it's easy to think that it starts with all these big things. But the beautiful thing is, I think that grace and mercy start with the little things. Mother Teresa, who's been a great teacher of mine, she said, we can do no great things, but only small things with great love. It's not how much you do, but how much love you put into every act. And they said, how did you manage to lift 50,000 people off the streets of Calcutta? And she said, I started with one. I started with one act of love and it just all burst out of that. And uh, 
there's a beautiful story. When I go to speak, I stay in people's homes every chance I get. I don't like those hotels too much. I like to stay with families, you know. And I guess the secret is, sometimes people think that's sacrificial, but when you stay in people's homes, people spoil you, you know. And 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 also, you know, I, there, there's this sense, too, that if some congregation is going to invite me to speak and they can't find somebody to take care of me, then they're probably not ready for me to talk, you know, uh, because I, I talk about hospitality. And, and um, and so uh, this one community that I stayed with when I was traveling, they had all kinds of people in and out of their house. And I ended up uh, staying there and I said, tell me your story. And they did. They, they said, you know, we in, we were pretty lonely, this husband and wife. They said we were pretty lonely. We had bought into kind of the American dream, you know, to move out and live on our own. But we found it very empty and very lonely. And then one day we were walking through our neighborhood and we met a woman who was homeless and she was six months pregnant. And we just said that that cannot be, you know, come back to our house. We'll figure something out. So she did. She came back to their house and uh, they just hit it off. They, 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 they said, you know what? This, th- if you want to live here while you have your baby, they, they told her that they had never been able to have a child and they had tried over and over. And they said, if you want to have your baby while you're living in our home with us, we would love to be a part of that. And she did. She had her baby while she lived with them. And then eventually they kept living together and they ended up saying to her, we're getting to live one of our dreams. What, what's something you want to be doing? And she said, I've always wanted to go to nursing school. So they said, well, why don't you go to nursing school? We'll take care of your little baby. We'd love that. And uh, and she went off to nursing school, became a nurse. And I was just back with them. They've lived together for over 10 years now. That little girl is a teenager. And that formerly homeless mom is a nurse. And the incredible twist to the story is that the woman of that married couple now has multiple sclerosis. And she's dying. But she's got a nurse living with her, taking care of her as she dies. And as you see that, you don't just see oh, a charitable married couple and a pitiful homeless one. Like you see a family that is not born of the flesh, but that is born of the spirit of our God. And I think it's those expressions of community and love that we're longing for that embody a good news that is good news to the poor. Amen. Let's pray together. God of love, we beat our chests and say, have mercy on us sinners. Forgive us for the embarrassing things that we've done in your name. Forgive us for having communities that have not always embodied grace and hospitality. Make us into the people you want us to be. Help us to become the change that we want to see in the church. I thank you for this community and I I pray that you would form people into people who remind the world of you, who remind the world of the things that you are. May we shine your love in the streets of Pasadena and Philadelphia and all over the world, that the world would know of your love and grace. Amen.